Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, continuing coverage of the coronavirus. One of the few bright spots of this period that we've just been living through is watching as the Atlantic Magazine has really come into its own around coronavirus coverage, really becoming a place that a lot of us look to, to try to figure out what's happened, what's going to come next, how we should be living our lives, what policymakers should be thinking. And one of the main reasons that that's the case is the science writing of Ed Yong, who is joining us today on The Kicker. Ed, thank you so much. Uh, thanks for having me. Yes, I'm thrilled to have you. I'm. You are among a very, very small group of people who I just, I, I wait for the next story to drop and sort of read it with fascination and terror and doom. <laughs> but also just, I'm just riveted by the way you put this stuff together and I'm riveted by your productivity. I mean, these pieces are incredibly complex and detailed and you just seem to be churning them out. How are you, how exhausted are you? I'm pretty exhausted. Uh, I am currently editing um, the sixth in a series of long form pieces that are all like between, so far they've been between about 3,500 and 7,000 words. This latest one is currently at 9,000. Um, and that's all been done in three months. Yeah. So I'm, I am, I am tired. You know, I'm, you know, let's, let's be clear. I'm not, I'm not as tired as say a healthcare worker on the front lines or, um, or an essential worker who's keeping our services running. Um, but it is, it is mentally and emotionally draining to be constantly immersed in this, um, in this story. Um, because it's so vast. It, it is, it, it's, it's almost omniversal. It, it touches on every aspect of society um, the stakes are incredibly high. It involves a huge number of academic disciplines, a huge number of personal stories. Um, there is so much confusion and um, and difficult information to wade through. And it's you know it's it's not it's it but in the main not a positive story. You know it's not something that that makes me happy to be to be submerged in. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a lot. What's the story about the one you're working on now? The story I'm working on now is a is a magazine story for um, the next issue of the Atlantic. Um, so that's the September issue. It will come out in August. Um, it is about the pandemic, um, but I probably don't want to say too much more about it at, the, at this point. Mm. Um, it, in many ways, it ties together a lot of the work I've done in the previous big stories about, um, you know, what's happened thus far, how the pandemic will end, uh, why it's so confusing, how we've led to this current patchwork. Um, it, it kind of bridges a lot of those ideas together um, into a cohesive package, which um, people will be able to see in the newsstands in about a month and a half, I think. Um, I, I think one of the reasons why your work resonates with so many people, especially so many sort of general interest readers who don't usually follow science is mm. because you sort of, you're, you, you don't, your voice is not all knowing. You right. acknowledge the uncertainty of all this. In fact, you wrote a right. piece about the uncertainty of all this, which I, I, I actually find quite refreshing and helpful because my sense is that nobody knows anything definitively. Um, right. Is that right? Or is that, is that oversimplifying it? 
I, I would say there are definitely a lot of things we don't know. Um, it's not everything. You know, we know that this is a coronavirus yeah. as a very clear example. Um, and there are also things where the uncertainty is bounded and directional. So, for example, we know that the number of confirmed cases is not the actual number of infected people. But we also know that the actual number of infected people is almost certainly going to be higher. So it's not going to be lower than the number of cases that are confirmed. And that it's you know going to be within a certain bound. So it's not going to be like a thousand times higher. It might yeah. be about 10 times higher. Um, so I, I think it, I, I say this because I think it is very easy for people to say, we don't know anything. Uh, yeah. or, and and theref- and then jump to the next logical step, which is, and therefore anything goes, and yeah, like yeah. everyone's viewpoints are, are correct. Actually, yeah. like there are definitely things we know about, and and like you say, one of the things I try and do in my pieces is to grapple with the uncertainties, to to delineate where the bounds of uncertainty lie, um, why those uncertainties exist and how we might go about um, reducing it. And yeah. that is like all part of my training as a science writer. This is stuff that I've been trying to um, do in my work for years. And I think it's it's um, manifesting now in a way that I hope will help readers in this time of immense uncertainty. Um, you know, I, I think it's it's so easy for people to try and um, and and find easy, simple answers, and those, at the best of times, are actually quite rare, and in pandemic times, are extraordinarily rare. So our job isn't to just give people like, you know, cheap contrarianism or, or easy sound bites or whatever. Our, our job is to help people make sense of these very difficult times and uh, and you know that it's a harder task but i think it's more rewarding for, for me as a journalist and hopefully for the readers too so but but you've been writing about science for a while and, and i'm really curious about whether because whether you've been surprised by this kind of right-wing skepticism of the science mm-hmm. and the data, it's not just right wing. I mean, there's, it's 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 large than that, I think. But did the ferocity of that and the strength of that surprise you at all, or have you seen this in other cases just as intensely outside of the coronavirus? Yeah, it do, it doesn't surprise me at all. Um, I think that um, you know those of us who've been um, immersed in the science world for a long time you know we've seen the same sorts of things happen with um climate change yeah. um with um vaccinations with gmos it is i think tempting to conjure up this um image of like a large anti-science lobby and I think that again, that is an oversimplification. Um, a, a lot of that comes uh, the p- groups of people who are uh, skeptical about each of those issues is different. Yeah, um, and they span the entire um, political spectrum. Yeah, um, what you know, we have seen some really intense politicization 
um, of science topics. Uh, this, the coronavirus is absolutely no exception to that. And it should not surprise us that such polarization is um, especially potent at a time when um, we have a leader who was elected you know, in part on the basis of distrust in expertise, um, in empiricism, and has stoked those fires um, for the last four years. So, you know, the, the, the idea that um, a lot of people would be sceptical, they're confused and misinformed, that's definitely not new. That's happened with every past outbreak um, in, in recent memory. It's happening now. Um, I think that the ferocity with which it's happening is a function not only of these polarized times and a very polarizing leader, but also just that the pandemic has uprooted our lives to such an enormous degree in such a short amount of time. And people are scrabbling to make sense of it. And you know they are constantly searching for more information um, and they, that, makes, that makes them vulnerable to absorbing misinformation into their lives. And that's why like our job as journalists is ever more important. Like we, we need to be so mindful about what we're putting out there. Um, and and this, is a, this is why I've, I've sort of switched approaches from doing what I would do in normal times, which is to do small news pieces on individual um, developments or studies or what have you, and go for these big sweeping synthetic pieces that, um, that try and give people a um, sweeping overarching view of what is happening. Um, to help them make sense of all this, um, this you know, these swirling eddies of misinformation that are out there. Yeah, I was going to ask you um, what makes for an Ed Young feature in the, <laughs> on the story. Um, what is it? That, are you looking for multiple threads that you can bring together? Is that what attracts you, or are you looking? For, as you say, you're not. You don't seem to be looking for the kind of contrarian take that is that yeah. goes against the conventional wisdom that's not the primary purpose it doesn't seem to be um it's more about putting pieces together is that the way you think about it i i think so like assembling um assembling all the pieces into a cohesive whole that will make people that will help people to make sense of the moment around them um our, our editor-in-chief has said to us before that um People don't come to the Atlantic to um, read the news. I think people come to the Atlantic to learn how to think about the news. Yeah, and that like extra level of abstraction and analysis is something that I and a lot of my colleagues are trying to achieve. Um, so you know, it's not just trying to say this thing happened and this thing happened and this thing happened, but trying to um, arrange um, and and like trying to arrange those events and then analyze them in a way that actually improves public understanding rather than just sort of describes the situation. Um, so, um, you know, all the pieces that, all the big pieces that I've done have big themes to them. So one yeah. of them is, the first one was about how the pandemic will end and what will happen afterwards. The second was a broad look at what the summer will entail um, and how it will be different to what we've um, known before. The third about um, all the reasons why the pandemic is so confusing. The fourth about the, the patchwork, this idea that um, 
yeah. different parts of America and different people are experiencing the same crisis in very, very different ways. And what that means for our ability to make sense of it, to predict it and to control it. Yeah. Um, so, so, uh, uh, and we're really seeing that now with these, with these sort of outbreaks that are in, that are sort of disparate and around the country all at once. Yeah, I, absolutely. Um, you know, now um, cases are rising in the South and the West, while um, they are declining um, in the East, um, in places that had been previously hit. Um, so, you know, we're in a bad situation, but it's a different bad situation than we were in March. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this this is, um, you've hit on something important here. Then another aspect of these pieces that um, that is important um, I've tried to make them timely, um, a little bit predictive, but continuing and um, continually relevant. Um, so, you know, Patchwork came out at a time when that trend was happening. It was it was very clear. It was clearly going to get worse with time. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and it and, you know, it, it's not like I want it's not like I'm putting the piece out. I want people to read it and then, you know, we can shelve it for later. I want the body of work to be um, continually useful to people and to give people frames to which, with which they can understand the, the future. Um, you know, I, I've likened before the, the pandemic to this, like, um, like whitewater rapids. Um, you know, it's this flow of information that is turbulent and incredibly fast and what I want to try and do with each of these pieces is to just land a rock in the middle of this flow so that people can stand on it and observe what is going on without being swept away in it. Mm-hmm. You know, this patchwork idea sort of reminds me, I mean, it's related, and you've talked about a little bit about this, but and, and it also sounds like you, maybe your next piece has something to do with this, but I really do feel like we're sort of at a moment where we're all on our own. Uh, both mm. in a big way, like, you know, the go- governors and mayors seem to be like getting no guidance from the federal government. But even in a micro way, like, you know, like each e- everybody's kid's school sort of has their own plan. Um, every right. family has like has their own plan. And right. I think one of the reasons why this is so stressful is that we're we're all just like having to wing it. Both, both, all the yeah. way from individuals, all the way up to, to cities and nations. Um, yeah. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, I, I think so. And it, you know, it's unfortunate um, to to a degree. Um, it, it was always going to be necessary. You know, people are individual. My life is not the same as your life, and my decisions are are constrained by different circumstances than yours. Um, so there, there will always be a certain amount of um, heterogeneity in people's actions. But the, the reason why leadership and federal coordination is so, are so important is that um, you need to be working off a consistent evidence-based framework so that if you and I are doing different things, it's based on a shared understanding of yeah. what like an ideal thing might be to do. That goes at, for the different states. It goes for counties. It goes for businesses and institutions. And it goes for families and individuals. But if we don't have that, if we have no shared foundation, if like the person in charge of all of it is just constantly lying and contradicting not only 
his public health agencies, but his, um, you know, like state and local leaders, and also himself, then we're in a bad situation because then everyone has to make decisions based on, you know, on on um, an understanding that is itself patchworked. Um, so, you know, there was always going to be a patchwork. It definitely did not need to be as intense or frayed as it is now. And, and I think without that shared collective spirit and understanding, um, you, it, it's difficult to mount the kind of collective effort that we need. Um, and I don't just mean like a collective like wartime mobilization of resources and research, but I just mean like the, the sense of unified spirit that you need yeah. in an ongoing disaster like this. You know, yeah. there is a weird sense of um, almost fatalism, as if like America has just kind of given up on the pandemic, which is weird because, you know, this is the country of Hollywood. It's the country that is, um, has, you know, America has been told by its own popular culture for decades now that, um, you know, that the good guys ride in at the end with the cavalry and mount a massive effort to save the day in every possible catastrophe. So to watch everyone just kind of go, eh, you know, to like mount a collective shruggy, that's a bit jarring and strange. And I think that's a factor of this lack of coordinated leadership. I think it's more, I, I see it as more active than that. I, I mean, I see, I, mm. I see it now we're in a phase where there is an active attempt to politicize this beyond just like, oh, well, we don't know what to do. It's more like, no, yeah. uh, it, it, there's, a, there's a signaling element. I, I remember when I realized that face masks were, were, were going to become a political act. And I remember mm -hmm. thinking, we are so screwed. As soon as people see face masks as a signifier of their politics, we're screwed. Um, mm -hmm. And and it just seems like, you know, the the this is it, it, it's not just that we don't know what to do. It's like actually don't don't listen to uh, health officials' advice because they're being political. Don't wear a face mask because that's what they want you to do. Um, and it just it just seems much more sinister and more. Um, proactively dangerous than just like, oh, well, we don't know what to do. You know what I mean? I, I do. And I think that, um, you know, one of the default tactics um, of this administration has always been start a culture war. Um, yeah. You know, when things are going bad, um, incite division. Um, uh, it's just, it's the same playbook we've seen over the last four years. So the fact that it should be applied to public health um, you know, shouldn't uh, shouldn't surprise us. One of the public health experts I spoke to said, you know, the, the climate scientists have are very used to this. You know, they yeah. they've been dealing with this for for decades, um, but it's it's new to people in public health. Um, you know, I I think it's to what extent it's deliberate or not. Um, I was talking to some colleagues earlier, and and um, was noting that. Um, so there's um, there's a rule called Hanlon's razor, which is um, never attribute to malice what could be explained by incompetence. <laughs> yeah. uh, and there is also Clark's third law, which is um, any sufficiently advanced science or technology is indistinguishable from magic. 
Uh-huh. And then there is a thing called Gray's Law, which I only learned about this week, which is a fusion of those two laws, which is any sufficiently advanced incompetent is indistinguishable from malice. Uh-huh. And I believe that's where we are now, right? Like, I can't tell the difference between deliberate attempts to obfuscate the nation's understanding of a pandemic and just gross incompetence and laxity that has led to basically the same end. Right. And and I'm not sure, you know, I'm not even sure it matters. Like, I think that it's, it's clear that the US has really badly failed in its response to this in a way that other countries that are less well-resourced um, have not and that you know it's it's a problem it's cost lives it's cost the mental health of the citizens it's cost to the economy um, and it doesn't like even now it doesn't need to be that way um, this is this is still the US it still has a ton of resources it still has very bright people in it it could still mount the efforts needed to control this pandemic. This is not a question of, um, you know, of, of money or, um, or or expertise. It's it's simply a matter of political and social will. And I think, like, we say that masks have been politicized. So this is true. but And yet, a majority of both Democrats and Republicans, according to recent polling, support mask wearing and support mm-hmm. mandatory use of mask wearing in at least indoor spaces. So... Yes, the politicization is inevitable, but also it's true that Americans have been remarkably um, willing to act collectively, like in contradiction to the individualist stereotype. You know, it is very, it is almost unheard of for a public health intervention to go from zero acceptance to like majority acceptance in mm. the matter of three months. So mm. there is. There's parts of it that are definitely bad, but there's also parts of it that are surprisingly good. And it's good in spite of all the efforts to make it bad. So imagine if we then actually had a fully functioning government that took control of matters. Like imagine what we could do then. Um, And that just, that that gap, you know, it's almost, it almost makes the whole thing more galling. It's like the, the, um, the American people have got us a, a quite surprising way there, um, like to the to the desired finish line, um, and and yet the country is stuck in this position where it can't get over that line because um, you know, of various like legacy factors. What is your thinking about what the fall is going to look like? <sighs> My thinking about the fall is that we have to get through the summer first. Um, you know, we, we've had this model for so long that uh, there was going to be a spring peak, a summer lull, and then maybe we have to get, get uh, you know, prepare for a second wave in the fall. Um, we haven't got past the first wave yet. And just looking at it, I, I've not seen that being on the horizon anytime soon. You know, what, what is happening now in the South and the West? That's not a second wave. That's just the first wave spreading mm. to parts of the country that haven't had it before. Mm-hmm. It's really only a small number of states that brought the pandemic under control and now seem to be taking off again that could be reasonably said to be experiencing a second wave. So either a second wave is going to hit before the fall or like we're just going to be stuck in this first wave in perpetuity, which is a horrible thought 
but also the one we need to grapple with. Like this, this old model of like what what the fall is going to be look, what fall is going to look like, is predicated on the idea that we actually made use of the time that social distancing brought us in the spring, and I don't think we did. Not not to the fullest extent. Some progress was made, not enough progress was made, and the US is paying the price for that right now. Mm-hmm. Well, that that stinks. <laughs> it's not good. <laughs> it's definitely bad. <laughs> I mean, it seems like that the way to view the U.S. is 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 not as a country, but as a but as I don't know, however many d- distinct nation states or whatever that you know. New, I live in New York, which is in a whole different situation than Arizona, which is in a whole different situation than Louisiana, and on and on and on. Right. Right. And, you know, to an extent, you can make that argument for basically anywhere. Um, The U.S. has um, is only slightly unique in that it is geographically vast. Um, So, you know, you really can parcel those places out into separate areas that in a way that makes sense. And also it has a remarkably decentralized healthcare system. So, you know, to a large degree, hospitals in different parts of the country do work independently um and you know and it does have this very federalist government where um states and local uh leaders um have a huge amount of independence and control over their own jurisdictions with the federal government acting as kind of a coordinating arm of the whole enterprise um so yeah there's um the national level statistics are misleading if used misleadingly, right? yeah. they, they need to be they need to be um, assessed carefully. Then again, you could say that with pretty much any statistic in the pandemic. Um, you know, I, I think I think you're right though. In in the main, I think you're right. The, the patchwork exists. It's not just one disaster. It's at least fifty different disasters, if not more. Um, and we need to be we need to be mindful of that. Ed, where do you live? I live in DC. Okay. And what is your own, like, you know, we're, we're all like, uh, I alluded to this, like, what is my life going to look like? And where are my kids going to be? And where and what mm. op- am I going to be in an office or not in an office? And what are your own operating assumptions about what your life is going to look like in the next few months in terms of your ability to move around, your ability to see friends, your ability to talk to people in person? What, what are your operating assumptions? Um, so my plan is to continue living in the way that I have been living for the last three months, um, which is um, largely staying at home, working mm-hmm. from home. I don't foresee going into an office anytime soon. Uh, I am um, starting to see friends again, mm-hmm. um, in which, thank, it, thank the heavens, it has been a remarkable salve on my soul. Yeah, um, but uh, you know, it, it's we are we are being extremely cautious. We're uh, staying outdoor. We're hanging out outdoors mm-hmm. in very small groups with distancing. Um, you know, uh, we're not hugging, which makes me sad. Um, you know, we're not going out to things. Just go to parks. Yeah. So parks, people's gardens. Um, you Do know, you wear a mask uh, in those settings when you're with your friends in somebody's backyard? I will, I, we, um, car, at the moment, um, we are masking up when we're sort of moving between places or when we have to go to, um, 
like in any in any time we have to go to like a grocery store or a liquor store or something like that um uh when we're out when we're just hanging out with friends um we try and use distance rather than the masks uh-huh. um but um that's also you know uh, that's also a a function of um so that also reflects the fact that the people I'm hanging out with have also been socially distancing for a long time right. and I'm also not seeing a ton of people. Um, but no travel. No travel. No. Um, the, you know, the, the furthest I've gone since March um, is about a 15-minute drive away. <laughs> well, I so appreciate you coming on. You're doing amazing work. I don't know how you do oh, it. Um, I don't know how you how you keep this pace up, but it's incredibly valuable. And I know a lot of us appreciate it. Well, you see, my secret is that I am terrible at self care. So, uh-huh. well, that can't continue on forever either. Uh, no, um, that, that also, that also cannot, but um, let me take a, take a break after this next piece is done. Well, thanks again. You can read all of Ed's work on the Atlantic's website and look for his secret feature coming um, in a month or so. You can also read, news about the media coverage of the coronavirus at cjr.org and follow our daily email newsletter the media today thanks for listening see you next week